Hello and welcome to Messages at BBC. In these messages, you'll hear from professors, staff, guest speakers, as well as students. These messages were spoken and recorded on campus at Boise Bible College. If you'd like to check out Boise Bible College, please see our website at boisebible.edu. In America, we don't expect to see it, but it's coming and is now here. It's called persecution. We can count on it, and I know that you can count on it in your lifetime. Why would we be surprised at that persecution is coming to America when it's everywhere else in the world. Why not here? And so it will get worse. And we are a comfortable bunch of Christians. Let's face it, we got it pretty easy. Talk to anybody who's lived somewhere else and they will tell you, Christians in America have it easy. And I'm concerned about that. That's why the message this morning talking about persecution. We have such ease as Christians that we sometimes think that little things that happen to us are persecution. So I'm going to give you the top 10 indicators that you are not being persecuted. Number 10, you're not being persecuted when your roommate borrows your blouse without asking. That is not persecution. Number nine, you're not being persecuted when you order, you order curly fries, you get down the street, you open your bag, and you find regular fries. That I hate that when that happens, but that's not persecution. You're not being persecuted when your 10-year-old grandson beats you three times in a row in Pokemon number seven. You're not being persecuted when that redneck and huge jacked-up diesel truck cuts you off and steals your parking spot. It's not persecution. It's just Idaho. Number six. You're not being persecuted. You're dropping hints all over the place about your poverty on the phone call with your mom. She still doesn't send you money. Oh, I hate that. Number five, you're not being persecuted when you tell the police officer you love his motorcycle, you think his helmet and sunglasses make you look sexy, and he writes you a ticket anyway. Yes. Number four, you're not being persecuted when your research papers return to you. It looks like your professor accidentally slit their thumb open with a box cutter while grading it. What, you guys don't get red marks on your papers anymore? Have we gone to blue and I just didn't hear the memo? Okay, number three. You are not being persecuted when at the sub you order white chocolate, almond, caramel, pistachio, pumpkin spice, mochilada, and after arriving late to class, you discover the barista forgot to put whipped cream on it too. Ah, oh, hate that when that happens. Number two. You're not being persecuted when you finally find the courage to ask that sweet young lady you tried to sit real close to in chapel before COVID for a date, and she tells you she's decided it's not going to date until she's 54 years old. Then you see you're out on a date in the evening with your roommate. Oh, man, that's not persecution. Number one, you're not being persecuted when. You, uh, boy, you've been sitting by in class, sitting by in the cafeteria, sitting by in the library, sitting by at Devo, sitting by at football games, sitting by in church, walking with the class, laughing at his stupid jokes, finally asks you to go get coffee with him, he tells you he's taken a lifetime vow of celibacy. You're not being persecuted. It's just hard times. Persecution is real. Throughout the scriptures, we find the people of God being persecuted. And it's no wonder the world hates us, those who are people of God, because we restrict them. Psalm 2 talks about how People of the world will say, let's cast their cords from us and break their chains. They hate the fact that we restrict their evil and restrict them from what they really want to do. 
and the Lord in heaven laughs because it's silly to go up against God that people still do. And so if they hated Jesus, they'll hate us too. Persecution, though, is not necessarily being beheaded for the cause of Christ. There are many in the world who have and will suffer bodily harm or be murdered on the cause of Christ. And we know they hold a special place in God's heart. We read in the book of Revelation that there are people in heaven saying, when will there be justice, Lord? Those beheaded on the cause of Christ. That kind of persecution is pretty obvious. But I want to talk about a persecution that is here and is coming and going to get worse. And you will see it. And it is that constant dripping of a faucet. That constant pressure from the world that's lorded over by Satan to try and break you down and make you renounce Christ or walk away from God. The Apostle Paul himself said he buffeted his body daily and made it his slave, lest after he preached to others he should be disqualified. There's a fight going on, and in in days of his life, the Apostle Paul said, I have fought the fight. I have kept the faith. There's a fight that we must be enduring to keep our faith. And that's the kind of persecution I'm talking about. So where are you building your house? If you're building a house of cards that's easily blown over, or are you building your house on the rock, building it on some concrete, on that strong cornerstone of Jesus, will your house stand when the storms come? And they are coming. Well, I could stand up here and try to tell you all about all the persecutions, and I could read names, and I'd never finish them in my lifetime or in your lifetime, the number of people being persecuted in the last hundred years, because every day the list is being added to. I want to talk about a persecution, though, that subtle, constant pressure that threatens us and threatens to drag us away from Jesus. So I want to tell you a story. And my story starts with a Jewish-Russian man named Boris Kornfeld. He was a physician, a doctor. And in the 1950s, when I was just a little boy, in Russia, a leader named Stalin was oppressing people who disagreed with him, who dared to disagree with the policies that he was putting forth. My grandfather, Shell, and his wife, my grandma, Shell, my dad's parents, came from Ukraine, Odessa, Russia area. And they referred to Stalin as the butcher. It's what my relatives in Russia called him. He was a wicked man. And his oppression was great. And so here's Boris, because he's a Jew, and he dared to say something against Stalin someplace in his life or dared to think the thought against Stalin. And he's in prison now, a terrible place, the gulags, they called them. And Boris is finally shattered by this experience. What have I done? I'm a physician. I believe in communism. 
I'm a socialist. And I'm a Jew. Why is this happening to me? But as he is oppressed and beginning to really see the death and deprivation and starvation and, and wickedness of the guards toward the prisoners in this gulag, he's shattered. And he, he comes to a point where he just says, I've lost everything. I had nothing left to believe in. And then he met a man, a well-educated Jewish man, who was a Christian. And this man, no name, we don't know who it was, began to tell Boris about this Jew that came and promised release for the prisoners to the Jewish people. He preached to the Jewish people. His name was Jesus. And as Boris listened to the, about the story about this Jesus, he was having a hard time getting his head around that. And he wondered about this well-educated Jewish man would believe in Jesus. One day a guard was brought in who was bleeding terribly and needed some quick surgery or he would die. And Boris was thinking, I'm a physician and here I have to save this wicked guard's life. What if I just act like I can't do anything and let him die? I just want him to die. And then he thought, no, that might get me killed. So he thought, okay, well, maybe I'll just put some sutures in there that suture up this artery, and then that'll, they'll dissolve within a few days. I can use a suture like that. Nobody would be the wiser. He would die anyway. And then he thought, but I would know. And it suddenly dawned on him that he had grown to a point where he was just as wicked as the guard that he hated, that he too had a murderous streak in his heart. And he was appalled at that. And then the words of a prayer that he had heard this Christian friend say over and over, the words rang in his head, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And it occurred to Boris there was something about this Jesus. And so he gave his life to Christ because of that experience and learning about Jesus. The man that he knew as a Christian was transferred to another camp, and Jewish, uh, Boris lost, lost contact with him. And one afternoon, they brought in this prisoner that had been given a cancer removal treatment, a surgery in his intestines, hardly any, if at all, uh, pain medication for this man. And so as the man is coming out of the anesthesia, Boris, this doctor, just saw in this man years of of uh, oppression that showed in this young man's face and he felt compassion for this young man and he felt compelled to tell him about this new Christ that he had found this new freedom that he had found in Christ this new way of living that had set him free from the murderous thoughts and had set him to a point where he wanted to just know the freedom of Christ and realized what a beautiful gift his life was now Boris had seen an orderly stuffing his mouth full of a bread that he had stolen from the hospital, the bread that was meant for Boris to give to the starving prisoners to save their lives. And Boris, as a Christian, was compelled to turn that man in. He just knew this man was killing prisoners and starving them by stealing their bread. And as a Christian, he felt he had to do his duty and turn this man in. He knew that when he did, the orderly would be punished, and when he got out, he would try to kill him. So he knew his days were numbered. 
So with that young man laying on the table, recovering from cancer surgery, Boris just couldn't stop telling him about Jesus. All afternoon, all through the evening, late into the night, Boris kept telling this young man about Jesus and the freedom that we have in Christ and the, the life that he had given us that went above and beyond our circumstances. And that night, Boris finally went to bed when the prisoner fell asleep. And the next morning early, the prisoner woke up and there was people scurrying around and he turned to a fellow prisoner on the table next to him and, and asked, what's going on? And the man said, last night, somebody took a hammer and beat Boris over the head eight times. He was killed. But that young man could not forget the passion and the compassion of that doctor's conviction about Christ. And that young man went on to give his life to Jesus. And his writings inspired many. His name was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. But the story doesn't stop there. Because in Odessa, Russia, near the coastline, it doesn't snow very often. And in 1964, when I was a sophomore in high school, a young lady named Irina Ratushinskia. Don't let me say that last name again. She said, Irina said, at 10, all she could dream about was, I just want to go play in the snow. I just want to go outside and throw snowballs and play in that snow that we almost never see around here. It was so beautiful. And she was being subjected to endless lectures about atheism. That God is not real. That God doesn't exist. And only old women, silly old women, believe in God. And a Baptist woman even roasted her child in an oven. And Jesus isn't real. And as she thought, I just want to play in the snow, another thought came into her mind. I wonder if this God is all-powerful, and that's why they're so afraid of him. And they keep trying to tell us he doesn't exist. I wonder if this God is kind. I wonder if this God cares. When Irina was 14, one evening in her bedroom, it suddenly dawned on her there was this presence, and she felt that God was there. And she began to seriously believe that God is real, or they wouldn't try to talk us out of it so much. Many people her age in Russia were doing that same, having that same experience that talked to her about it later. Her mother was a literature professor, so she had access to many books, and she started reading Tolstoy and Pushkin and Dostoevsky and her favorite hero, Solzhenitsyn. And she could find little snippets of God and Jesus here and there in the writings, and she was a little confused about her Christianity, but she gave her life to Christ. And decided, yes, I'm a Christian. I have to believe in this God who is there, who cares, who never leaves me. When she was 23, she was finally able to get her hands on the very first Bible she could get. Somebody gave it to her, a Jewish Christian who was leaving to come to America. It was an 18th century Bible written in the old Slavic language. So she, for months, studied Old Slav language 
so that she could learn to read her Bible. And then as she read her Bible, she was thrilled to find this Jesus and was able to learn more about him. At the age of 28, that study was what she had needed because she was what was considered a dissident, someone who wouldn't kowtow to the government, someone who would not bow down to the leadership that was there in the government in Russia at that time. And Khrushchev's policies were lax compared to his followers. And the leaders of Russia, a KGB officer that had crushed Hungary and tried to stamp Christianity out there, was now ruling in Russia as a KGB leader, and the oppression was great. And because she was a Christian, and she dared to meet secretly with other Christians, and dared to write poetry, because she became a poet, she dared to write poetry about this Christ who gave us freedom and the inhumane policies of the government. She was thrown in prison and given seven years in prison and seven years of internal exile. Most of her time in prison was spent in solitary confinement, over a year combined time, and often giving no food or clothing to keep warm. She was just left to do what she had to do. Many nights she thought she would freeze to death. And she said as she huddled against the wall, I, I can't re recite the poem for you, but as she huddled against that wall, the presence of God became her warmth. And the realization that she was on the right track, that she was going to trust and obey Jesus. Here in the chapels, a favorite song when I was a student here was trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And she also said when she was finally released in 1986, her and her husband uh, fled to America. She said when she was released that she knew when she was in that prison and, and sometimes some nights when she just knew she was starving to death and was going to die from, free, from freezing, that the warmth of people's prayers, she could just know the presence of God and, and know the prayers of others were keeping her in his grace. And when she was released, she talked to other prisoners that were Christians, and they said their same experience. Some nights, some days, they just felt the warmth of other people's prayers for them. See, people are blessed when they're persecuted for the sake of righteousness. There's a lot of people around the world that are being persecuted, but they're not blessed because they're not being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And God's promise is, I will bless you when you are persecuted in my name. Upon her release, she was able to write a couple of books in the beginning and something about the color gray. And in those books, she talked about what it was like in her gulag experience, much like Solzhenitsyn had written Gulag Archipelago and his experiences. And like her hero, Solzhenitsyn, she had also done some pretty silly things, but it worked for her. She would write her poems on a bar of soap, and then she could wash them away and write another 
she would commit that one to memory and then write another. And any scrap of paper, much like her hero, Solzhenitsyn, she would find little pieces of paper, cigarette paper, any kind of little scrap of paper, and write some lines of her poems on the paper. And those little scraps of her poetry would make their way out of the prison and into the Russian population. And it was an inspiration and an encouragement to others to stay true to Jesus and don't capitulate, don't give in to persecution because you are blessed when you are persecuted for the name of Jesus. Let's look at some of these ending slides here. Blessed are you, are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. There's the qualifier. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. For they rejoice and be glad your reward in heaven is great. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. Next slide. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Why is this so important to Jesus that on the night he's betrayed, he's telling his disciples these things? If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. I said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. This is important to Jesus. They'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you thinks he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I want you to remember that you were told about this persecution. Because I've been hanging around this old school since 1978. That's 42 years. And I can tell you I've got names of people heartbreaking to watch students and graduate of Boise Bible College who not only left the ministry unnecessarily and gave up, but some denounced Christ and gave up on God. Don't let that happen to you. The persecution that comes may not be drastic, just that constant nagging pressure to cave. The Apostle Paul said, we're not those who shrink back. We don't lower our slaves, our, our sails and give up. Take heed lest you fall. Stand. Put on the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. Gird your loins with truth. Put on, shod your feet with the gospel of peace and, and take up the sword of the Spirit. So you can stand. Stand, says Paul. Jesus put it this way in this Sermon on the Mount that we read. He ends his sermon with these words. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Whoever hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Are you building yourself a house of cards or are you building yourself a house on the rock, on the cornerstone of Jesus? Persecution is coming, and you will see it, and it's now here. But we are not of those who, as in Revelation 21.8 says, 
cowardly. The cowardly and the unbelieving will not inherit the kingdom. Or Matthew 10 where Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill your body and then they're done. Fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell or destroy both body and soul in hell. And then he goes on to say, but don't fear. You are of more value than multitudes of sparrows. And not one sparrow falls out of a tree without your heavenly father seeing it. Take courage. And we end with these glorious words from the Apostle Paul. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, to him be the according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. This passage is Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine and go in peace. You are dismissed. Thank you for listening today. Boise Bible College exists to raise up leaders for the church, where we value scholarship, humility, innovation, and community. For more information about Boise Bible College, please see boisebible.edu.